Let's pray. Father in heaven, we eat often the junk food of this world. Send your Holy Spirit now for the sake of Christ to feed us with the true nourishment of your word. Forgive us that we have wandered and sought nourishment in other things and places and draw us back again to the true gospel that is found only in Jesus Christ our Lord. Knit us more to him. Stir up our faith. Convict us of sin. Encourage our hearts in our struggle against this world. Would you shine your light upon Christ in our hearts even now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. You'll remember that last time I was with you in the morning we began Revelation chapter 2. There's seven letters that Christ has written to seven churches. And as I'm privileged to be with you in the mornings, we'll work our way through them one at a time. This morning, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, this is the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and now the proclamation of his word. Have you ever considered why God's people seem to experience so much suffering in this life? And we see it over and over in the pages of Scripture. Things like what Jacob experienced when his ten sons came home, and even though Joseph was not dead, Jacob lived a life believing his favorite son was torn apart by wild beasts. Do you think that he, in that moment, questioned if God was really still on the throne? We sing, It is well, very often in our services, do you think that Horatio Spafford thought that the Lord was still ruling and reigning on his throne when his four daughters were taken by the sea? We, we know he believed this. Don't you think he struggled in that moment to believe that God was still God and that things were still well? You know, there's plenty of other examples in the pages of Scripture and the annals of history, but each and every one of us All of God's people know what it is to fight and to struggle and to suffer. When I was almost nine, my younger brother Jonathan died after a three-year battle with cancer, just two months shy of his sixth birthday. Suffering is everywhere, isn't it? And in the midst of our suffering and our trials and our difficulties, 
What's your response? As those who belong to God, what is our response to suffering? And be honest, right? We're not so quick to just be so trusting every single time something hard happens, are we? Lord, why why did my brother die? Why did my loved one get sick? Why, why am I still sick? Why must I continue to go back for treatment after treatment? Why did I lose my job? Why do I hate my job? Why have you put me where you've put me? Why, why another miscarriage, Lord? Why still the same sin over and over again? Why still is parenting so hard and so frustrating? Why, oh Lord, do things in life hurt so bad? If we belong to God, surely things should always be okay. Isn't this what we think so often? Sometimes it is nearly impossible to believe that God is still ruling and reigning, isn't it? Sometimes it is, it is almost beyond comprehension for us to understand and accept that there is indeed a loving and gracious and sovereign God sitting on his throne in heaven, seeking your good and mine because we are his through Christ. It is so very hard to believe this. And that's what Jesus is talking about as he writes to the church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna was suffering. Poverty and tribulation and slander, imprisonment, death is coming. We read it there. And in the midst of this, Jesus writes to them. And, and, and as he writes to these seven churches, he writes to all of the churches. He writes to you and me about suffering. And he, he makes these three points, and this will be our outline this morning. Jesus offers, first, comfort in suffering. He offers understanding of suffering, and he offers encouragement through suffering. Comfort, understanding, and encouragement. See, first, that he he offers comfort to his people in the midst of suffering. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty... Skip the, skip the parenthetical for a moment. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The city of Smyrna would have probably been second in the world at that point only to Ephesus and Rome. Um, they probably had 200,000 people in the whole city. They, they possessed a strong alliance to the Roman Empire, and they were particularly populated by Jewish Individuals, and this made it extremely difficult to live in Smyrna as a Christian. Rome didn't want you to believe, not at this point in history, and the Jews certainly didn't want you to believe. The Christians in Smyrna were facing persecution because of their beliefs and because of their lifestyle. They probably lost their jobs because they believed in Jesus. They were being tormented by these unbelieving Jews who weren't true Jews, they were a synagogue of Satan. They They were facing tribulation and trials because of their affiliation with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself writes to them. And do you see what he says at the beginning of verse 9? I know. I know. 
Now, he certainly is, is speaking about just a, an intellectual awareness of their situation, but isn't he expressing so much more in these words? I know. Some of you have offered these, all of us have offered these words, and plenty of us have been recipients of these words, but you're ever in a very difficult situation, and somebody comes up to you and says, I know how you feel, and all you can think in your heart is, you have no idea how I feel. Nobody can know how I feel. Jesus knows. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. Did you catch his introductory words in verse 8? What's one way that he identifies himself? The one who died. Jesus suffered and died on this earth. Not, Not only did he humble himself to condescend to become a man, but he was then treated as a criminal and he was tortured and he was put to death. He knows what suffering is. And before we get to what that means for us, let's be clear, Jesus didn't suffer only so that he could identify with you. His suffering was not so that he could sort of experience what you will experience. Jesus suffered and died because you deserve to suffer and die. Right? His death was not so that he could commiserate with you. His death was so that you might not die yourself. We deserve to die because of our sin and our guilt before a holy God. Jesus came and died in our place so that the penalty no longer rests on us. And one of the blessed benefits of his redemption is that he understands your suffering. He understands what it is to face temptation and difficulty. He he does not turn a blind eye to the things and the lives of his people that cause pain. He, He is not somehow unaware of your particular situation. Do you see? He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I am here. Whatever it may be. We only know a handful of the specifics of the church in Smyrna. But what the message of this letter communicates is that whatever may be going on in the life of God's people, He knows, and He's with us, and He cares. Whether it's, it's a family that's been split up by divorce, and, and you know how, how something like that just continues to cause pain over the years. Maybe a family member is at the, the brink of death's door. Maybe your job is just so overwhelming that you can barely think straight from day to day. Maybe you desperately desire a a child or spouse or a friend, and yet God has not provided one. Maybe you continue to fight against that same sin over and over and over again, whatever it may be whatever it is in your life that has has brought difficulty and pain and turmoil, no matter how small, no matter how seemingly insignificant it may be in the grand scheme of things, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. God knows. Do you remember the end of Exodus chapter 2 when it says it records that the Lord heard the cries of the people from Egypt and their slavery and the final sentence of that chapter just says, and God knew. He knows. He's there, he's present, and he comforts us with these words. Did you you catch it in verse 9? It's the part we didn't read. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. 
See, it may seem like this on the outside, but underneath, inside the parentheses of our life, we are rich with all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. You know, your life may be riddled with hurt and pain and difficulty, but in Christ, there is full assurance of salvation from sin and glory one day with God. And what comes along with this is hope and joy and peace and temporal relief in our hearts, maybe not on the outside of our lives, but inside there is peace and hope because of what Christ has done. It may not seem like it on the outside. But one day, someday, listen Christian, one day, someday, your pain will go away. That's what he's telling them. It may seem bad on the outside, but you are rich. And that richness, that blessedness will lead to a life one day, do you know, free from sin unable to sin, unable to displease God and living forever in his happiness and glory and blessedness. And until that day, Christ looks down on his people in our pain and in our hurt and he says, I have felt it and I'm here. Jesus knows. He knows. He also offers understanding He comforts and then he tries to open up our minds to understand why he lets suffering in. Some of the the background to it. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. There's two things here, one very briefly. The definite amount of time that's mentioned there, we're not meant to try to figure out all the different things that the number 10 can mean. There's probably a thousand articles on the internet that try to do that for you. Ignore those. The definite amount of time simply says to us that it's not forever and that Jesus is in control. Yes, you you will be delivered over to prison, but only for a certain amount of time. Jesus is in control of the imprisonment. He's in control of the tribulation. Nothing's going to happen to him that he has not stamped okay ahead of time. Nothing's going to happen to Job that God did not allow to happen to Job. Terrible, horrible at the hands of Satan himself. But God was ruling and reigning still, and so also over Smyrna and over you. God is in control. He's not leaving his throne. Not a thing will come to you. That God is unaware of. But secondly, and perhaps more primarily here, Jesus offers understanding in our suffering in that phrase, that you may be tested. That you may be tested. The difficulty, whatever the imprisonment is going to be, for some definite amount of time that's not forever, This is happening that you may be tested. Jesus is showing us here that there is purpose. That there's intention and meaning in trials and tribulations. That the Smyrnans are not suffering for no reason at all. You feel like that, don't you? 
difficulty doesn't seem like it's really worth anything. Is this really going to teach me anything? Why this and why this? What's the point of it all? Jesus says here, you may not see the point, but there is a point. That you may be tested. And we have to be careful because we may easily hear that phrase to be tested and think that you know, all of a sudden comes rushing back those fever dreams you have about showing up again for an exam your senior year and you haven't studied for it. Right, does anybody else have those? It's not that kind of testing. To be tested by God is a good thing. It's a good thing. He's trying us as gold. The prophet Amos was a, um, a dresser of sycamore trees, a dresser of the sycamore figs. And, and this meant that he would come to the sycamore trees and he would hit the figs with a very hard stick. And this process, don't ask me, somehow helped the figs ripen, become ready for eating. Trials in the Christian life are the same. Trials in our life produce fruit. It doesn't feel good for the fig to get hit, if a fig could feel getting hit. But it would not produce edible fruit if it was not subjected to that difficulty. And similarly, for the Christian struggle and difficulty and suffering, God uses it for fruitfulness. Paul writes about it in Hebrews chapter 12. And he says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. This is what you read when you discipline your children. Yes, it hurts right now. But God uses this to bring about righteousness in our lives. It's during a hard providence. It's during suffering and trials. Isn't it that God teaches you how to truly rely on Him? How to truly reach out and call upon Him? He may teach you in those hard days not the meaning of the difficulty, but He will teach you how to pray better. And he'll teach you how to depend on him more. Suffering brings about fruitfulness. Trials produce fruit in another way in that they show us our sin. You know, that person in your life that's so hard for you to love is just a billboard for how bad you are at loving people. It's not about that person, it's about your heart. And God is using that situation to show you that you need to depend on him more. That you need Jesus more than you ever thought you did because you're bad at loving people. When we lived in Jackson during seminary, Caitlin's job was our only source of, of substantial income. I was an RUF intern. That didn't help us out very much. Um, it didn't sit well with me one day when she came home with a letter from her employer saying even just that they might not be able to pay her for a certain amount of time. I mean, the possibility of that drove me into a panic. And what does that show about my heart in that moment? That I don't trust God to supply everything I need. That I don't trust that he'll take care of me. Difficulty and trial, they, they cause us to see our sin. They open our eyes to our great insufficiencies and so also they open our eyes to our great need of Christ. And if there's any hope for us, it won't be found in ourselves because of how wretched and miserable we are, but it will be found only in the one 
who is all that we need. He, he brings in this letter an understanding of suffering. He teaches that trials are fruit-bearing opportunities, that they may hurt, and we wouldn't wish for them. But Jesus is in control, and he knows how long they will last. And he tells you that they are for your own good. So, Christian, press on. You hear? You press on. You press through the difficulty and you trust the Lord that he is with you because he is. And he never goes back on a promise. You press on. Trust him. The third thing that Jesus offers for us here is encouragement that we would be faithful through the suffering. Encouragement to be faithful. See the end of verse 10. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Before we talk about what this looks like in the life of those of us in the room, I want to think about it in, in the, the minds and hearts of the Smyrnans for a moment. That they, they knew in Smyrna that living as a believer would lead to death. We don't know if they had faced it yet, but we know that they would. One name you may recognize is that of Polycarp. He died in the middle of the second century, but scholars think perhaps that he may have been young but, but present in Smyrna when this letter arrived. And he would have heard read out loud, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Polycarp, when he was later on in his life there, the middle of the second century, died as a martyr at the hands of the Roman government. Listen to this account of his last moments. Polycarp had been asked to say, Caesar is Lord, but he refused. Brought to the stadium, the proconsul urged him, saying, Swear, and I will set you free. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When the proconsul again pressed him, the old man answered, Since you are vainly urgent that I should answer by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. A little later, the proconsul answered, I have wild beasts at hand. To these I will cast you, except if you repent. And I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing that you despise the wild beasts if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. Soon afterwards, the people began to gather wood. Thus Polycarp was burned at the stake. You reckon the words of this letter rang in his ears as he sat there in front of the proconsul? Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. But what does it look like to be faithful unto death when you go to an office every day? Maybe even some Christians going with you. 
What about when you're riding a tractor all day? There's, at least there's no threat of death because of what you believe in those moments. What about when you're at home with your children? What is it to be faithful unto death there? How are we in, in our blessed condition in the country that we live, how are we to understand what it is to suffer as Christians? We, we, we come home to comfortable homes with, with hot meals and a nice television on which we can watch the game, or at least I assume some people watch games. What are we supposed to do with this? How do we take the end of verse 10? How are we to live faithful unto death? I'm sure I've told you before, um, when I was growing up, my, my mom had these little purple index cards that were all around the house in different places, above, you know, in the laundry room and in the kitchen and in her bedroom on her vanity mirror. And in, in plain black text was printed just three words, alarming to a young man, so ignorant as I was, death to self. Death to self. Concerned for my mother and her mental state, I approached her and asked the meaning of these cards, and she explained them by quoting John 4, verse 20, when John the Baptist said, speaking of Christ, he must increase, I must decrease. You see, we, we must put ourselves to death. We put to death our selfish ambitions. We put to death our own fame, our own plans. We put to death all of who we are in service to God and His kingdom. We Faithfulness in the midst of suffering, faithfulness in the midst of your trials and your difficulties, faithfulness in the midst of a world plagued by sin, Faithfulness is not about seeking your own welfare. How can I get out of this circumstance? That's not what faithfulness is. Faithfulness is about seeking God's glory. What does this mean about God and about who He is and about what He is doing? Faithfulness unto death means putting down yourself. It means setting aside preferences and and setting aside comforts and saying in your prayers every morning when you wake up, yes, Lord, if if it is in this difficulty that you will be glorified, then bring it on. Let me have it. If you will be glorified in my death, do it. I heard a pastor once say that we often think about faithfulness in chunks that are way too big for us to handle. January 1st is a great day to think about this. You know, all year, I'm never going to sin, not once. I'm not going to sin in what I do or what I say or what I think ever all year. Okay, I'm exaggerating, of course, but isn't this kind of what we do? I'm going to read my Bible every day for four hours. It's going to be great. God's going to be so happy with me. We think about it in too big a chunks. This pastor says, don't worry about the rest of your life right now. Or how you're going to faithfully live out every single thing after today. Rather, he says, live faithfully for this 60 seconds. And then at the end of those, live faithfully for another 60 seconds. He says, don't get too far ahead of yourself. Just faithfully finish your cereal and then go on to the next thing. Isn't that so helpful for you? You know, 
all of these things on the internet about how many times I'm going to read my Bible this year, how many, how many ways I'm going to be better than I was last year, and I just need to get through the next meal without yelling at somebody, without being frustrated with my children, or without being upset about how I'm not who I want to be. Said about how somebody spoke to me or about how somebody took the parking spot I want. I can't think in these huge chunks. Lord, just help me with this right now. That's faithfulness. Jesus presses it in verse 11 towards the end. The one who conquers or, or the one who overcomes in some translations will not be hurt by the second death. He's talking about two types of people. The one who overcomes is the one who's faithful. He's already spoken about that. And we know from later on in Revelation that the second death is the lake of fire into which those whose names are not written in the book of life are thrown. So he's saying, if you will not be those who are burning in the second death in the lake of fire, you're a believer. And so he says, Christians overcome. Christians are faithful. This is the challenge to us. Not that we save ourselves, but that we rest in Christ and that we pursue him. That we run toward him. When trials come along, find comfort in the one who is described there in verse 8. The one who is the first and the last who died and came to life. This is the one who saved you and has redeemed you and has brought you to life in God. Find comfort, not in circumstance. Find comfort in Christ and in what He has done for you. Secondly, understand That Christ holds you. That the trials that you're experiencing are not outside of his control, but they are for your good, they are for his glory, and that he is always ruling and reigning on his throne. No matter how much it may seem to the contrary in the moment, it often does. Jesus knows, and Jesus is present, and he has not let you go. And with these things, with the comfort of our redemption in Christ and the understanding of his grand purposes for his kingdom and for his people, then we seek to be faithful. 60 seconds at a time, day in and day out. You you pray and you read your Bible and you show up here to worship the Lord and find blessing in the ordinances of it. Being faithful in the face of suffering is not about bearing through it. It's about turning to Christ. It's about turning to the one who is the author and the perfecter of your faith and saying to him, Lord, I am so weak. But you, O God, are strong. Would you give me the strength to be faithful even in this painful moment? That's your prayer. Beloved, He is with you, and He knows. May God help us that we would trust Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we have not the time to list all the pain that sits in these pews, and that stands in this pulpit. But we trust You, And we love you. And we thank you that you are ruling and reigning in heaven so that you can say to your church, even those in such dire tribulation in Smyrna, that you will give life 
to those who are faithful. We thank you that our faithfulness is not based in ourselves, but it is because of the work you are doing in us. We thank you that you have a purpose for our pain, and we thank you that you have comforted us all of our time with you in the Christian life with the acknowledgement of Christ as Lord. Remind us afresh today of who Jesus is and knit us more to him that he might be honored and glorified. And we pray it in his name. Amen.